Hi y'all, it's Thursday and today's show is gonna be lit. It really is. First we have the latest from Sudan and then I'm sitting down with Julia Stiles. And I'm talking to Kevin Bacon. We'll see you on the timeline. But first, some coffee. Twitter. I'm Alex Berg, he's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. And we are very caffeinated, Twitter. Indeed. <laughs> How are you doing today? I am great. I am so looking forward to our interviews that we're both doing today. We have so, some very famous people we here. We do, we do. And I can't wait to tell Julia Stiles that she was the first possibility model for me <sighs> for an interracial couple oh. and my sisters. <laughs> Well, I'm excited to talk to Kevin Bacon about our shared interest of the city of Philadelphia. Mm, so, as a city of Philadelphia myself, and I'm I here must for it. and I must share because I know that everyone has six degrees of separation from Mr. Yes, Bacon. This is a thing. I do not know my six degrees, but mm. I know today it will shorten to two because of Alex Berg. So, thank you so much I am, for that. You are so it's welcome. Really appreciate it. I am so glad that I could do that for you. <laughs> Well, Max Tani tweeted, anti-vax activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr. tells the Daily Beast's Tarpley hit that he and Jessica Biel met with California state lawmakers this week to lobby against a vaccination bill. Jessica Valenti tweeted, she's bringing measles back. <laughs> and BuzzFeed News' Katie Notopoulos said, more like Jessica Beazles. <laughs> this morning, God, the puns. This, this morning, Jessica posted a statement on Instagram saying, I am not against vaccinations. I support children getting vaccinations, and I also support families having the right to make educated medical decisions for their children alongside their physicians. My concern with SB 277 is solely regarding medical exemptions. Okay. okay, so she is setting the record straight this morning, and uh, this bill is would increase the oversight of medical exemptions okay. for vaccinations to give you a little bit of background on this story. Yeah, because she's very passionate about this one friend. And like, I love friendship. <laughs> I think friendship's important, we all need it, but wow, one friend has moved well, you to take friend. yourself up to Sacramento. And Indeed. fight for a vague bill. For yes, yeah, absolutely. So, but what I think is interesting because the tweet got really ratioed when the Daily it's Beast <laughs> first they said it was an exclusive and it was on Instagram. So, lol. Um, I love the Daily Beast. Don't hate me. But <laughs> beyond that, you know, I think it's bringing up this conversation about celebrities and their role in public it opinion. Is. Yes. When should they talk about these things? When can they share their private opinions if they're not correct? Yes. And the thing about the anti-vax movement in particular, it is especially pernicious because it is such misinformation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the study that the anti movement often cites is one that uh, was so deeply flawed, um, inaccurate, mm. debunked, and retracted. And so I think a lot of the reaction on Twitter came from um, this idea that she has a big platform um. and she's using it to forward something that is potentially dangerous. Yeah, and it's not only that she has a big platform, but her husband, Justin Timberlake, is still incredibly famous. The man has 65 million Twitter followers, huge influence. And you know, if she believes a certain thing, then we can assume that maybe he supports that. And between the both of them, they could really sway a lot of opinion. And that's not always great when it's not real. Right, exactly. And this is just another one of these stories that makes me think like, let's leave it to the professionals, let's leave it to the scientists, let's yes. leave it to people who work in medicine, yes. who actually know what they're talking about and that vaccines are safe. Yes, yes, I agree completely. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Who's a celebrity who disappointed you? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm Mine, real quick, is Azalea Banks. Love you, girl, but music's great, but you keep disappointing me all the time. I mean, all of the time. All of the time. So, does it ever make you wonder, like, just why do you have to weigh in on something that has nothing, like, why not just stay in your lane, uh, do your thing, like, be the entertainer you're, you're meant know. to be? 
And like, yeah, that's I don't it. know, but I'm still listening to your music. I'm sorry, don't don't cancel me, Twitter. <laughs> BuzzFeed News tweeted: the final season of My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic, will include a lesbian pony couple. Templeton Moss tweeted. My question is, will adding a gay character really make a cartoon about magical, brightly colored, fancy horses that much gayer than it already is? <laughs> BuzzFeed News reporter Lauren Strapigale covered this story and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. All right, so I want to know, who is this new pony couple? Okay, so this couple is <laughs> Aunt Holiday and Auntie Lofty. And one of them loves sewing, one of them loves travel, and together they are a powerful lesbian pony couple. Uh, I love it. Powerful lesbian pony yes. couple, the representation that matters it in does. America. But who's Scootaloo? Or what is, is a Scootaloo? <laughs> I, I just, this name. Yeah. Is We've been really captivated <laughs> by Scootaloo. Something there. Yes, I've learned a lot about Scootaloo. So Scootaloo is um, a younger pony character on the show whose parents have just kind of been absent this whole time. Um, and she actually is taken care of by her aunts because her parents are traveling all the time. Oh, well, I, I've heard that this is not the first time this couple has made an appearance. What is their history? Yeah, so they actually appeared in a book two years ago. They've never appeared on the show. That's what's new this time around. But they're in a book a couple of years ago. And at the time, um, a writer and producer, Michael Vogel, uh, confirmed on Twitter that they are, in fact, a couple. They're not just like gal pals. They're not just best friends. They're not sisters. They are, in fact, a couple. And what information did the producers share with you beyond the fact that they are just a couple? Yeah, so they were really, they thought it was really important that in the world of My Little Pony, which is really about acceptance and love and friendship and magic, that it just made sense to have, you know, greater representation. And, you know, and they really felt that having a same-sex couple would fit pretty flawlessly into the world they've created. Recently, the show Arthur featured a same-sex wedding, um, which was both lauded, and then there was also a backlash uh, as well. Um, what has the reaction been to this couple? Well, fans love it. Because I think when you look at the fandom of My Little Pony, it's a, like a pretty loving space. So people have been really accepting. But also, I think it's interesting to, to note that in the episode itself, um, they're definitely there, they're definitely a couple. But it's not as explicit as, say, in Arthur, where you had you know, a literal gay wedding. So it could probably fly under the radar if it, um, if it has to. Mm, mm, mm. Well, something I need to ask from an expert like yourself is, uh, <laughs> what is a brony? Because I keep hearing this. Story <laughs> and I, 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 I'm not well-versed in the My Little Pony universe. Sure. Well, a brony is an adult male, or at least an older male, who loves the fandom. I mean, obviously, they're not the target market. The majority of My Little Pony fans are the target market, which is, you know, children. <laughs> um, but a brony is an adult guy who, like, loves the show, loves the message, loves cosplaying as these characters, um, and are just super fans of the, of the show. Hmm. All right. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Well, time to shift gears this morning. Violence in Sudan has gripped the country over the past week as protesters and military leaders clash over the country's future. Former New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark tweeted, Sudan internet blackout continues as military attempt to crush democratic movement. Horrific reports of violence against protesters still emerging. Military counts on limited international attention span. The blackout has made contacting locals near impossible, and many fear more violence is to come. Executive Director of the Human Rights Watch, Kenneth Roth, tweeted, Sudan's decision to shut down the internet was itself a violation of the right to free expression. It is also typically a prelude to more serious abuse, such as the killing of protesters by pro-military forces that occurred in Sudan. 
Mm-hmm. Joining us today to discuss the situation in BuzzFeed, uh, is the situation is BuzzFeed East Africa reporter Tamir Griffin. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So President Omar al-Bashir was ousted in April. What has been happening in the country since that moment? Since then, there has been a period of largely peaceful sit-in protests. Um, People have been trying to work on uh, a civilian-led transition into a civilian-led government. Um, And a lot of this took place during the holy month of Ramadan. So we saw a lot of people um, sitting out in in the city, primarily in the capital Khartoum, um, just uh, talking to each other, trying to facilitate peaceful talks, which is part of what made the violence that started at the beginning of last week so unprecedented. Um, Protesters were not uh, instigating the military. They were actually trying to do the opposite um, and trying to transition into civilian-led rule. Um, So the contrast between what had been happening in the months since Bashir had been arrested and what happened last week was jarring on many levels. Mm. You mentioned that protesters were not trying to instigate the military in the military, excuse me, why did state security services open fire on unarmed pro-democracy protesters who are holding a sit-in? According to a lot of the the activists that I've spoken to, the move was nothing more than an attempt to uh, misdirect the momentum of the civilian-led government movement. Um, And the the level of violence and the level of the response by the military um, was completely unprecedented. More people actually died in last week alone than in the four months that people have been protesting um, for al-Bashir to step down. Wow, that is incredible. So the internet has been shut down. When did that exactly happen and what is the government's rationale for doing this? So it started on June 3rd, which was the same day that the military crackdown started. Um, and this, has, this is not the first time that, a mili- that an internet shutdown has taken place in Sudan. It actually happened also back in December when um, the anti-Bashir, anti-government protests started. And it's, it's an attempt to prevent people from communicating with the outside world. You know, the, the military and the government doesn't want people tweeting photos of um, peaceful protests. And they definitely don't want people tweeting photos of the military running through the streets shooting civilians with live bullets um, for, for no reason, essentially. They, they don't want people to communicate with the outside world what's happening in the country. Um, and as you can imagine, this has had really um, extreme and sometimes even deadly implications because when people do get injured, there's, there's hardly a way to communicate with them. Even the landlines are down now. Um, so what, what initially started as an attempt to, you know, stifle communication among protesters and between protesters in the outside world um, has become a lot more extreme. Mm-hmm. You mentioned these extreme efforts to cut off communication, uh, and yet you reported that some people are camping outside of television stations to use the Wi-Fi. Why is the government not shutting down broadcast networks? I think broadcast networks are mostly intra-national communication, whereas internet allows for um, international communication. And I think that is where the threat is. That is where a lot of the movement has gained its momentum. The ability to communicate with the Sudanese diaspora which has been extremely active um, from their respective places in the world and um, is extremely invested in this movement and has been doing a lot of um, a lot of work from from their own places to to raise awareness. They don't want that to happen. Um, so I think that's why an internet shut, shutdown, as opposed to like a broadcast television shutdown, um, had had a more uh, impact, uh, had a bigger impact um, against the movement. 
Mm. Earlier in the show, we read a tweet from the former prime minister of New Zealand speaking against what's happening in Sudan. What is the response looking like from the United States? So the U.S. has also condemned the violence. They have come out in support of the civilian-led transition into a civilian-led government. Um, And they have hinted, not even so subtly, at um, the the influence that other countries like Saudi Arabia and Egypt are having um, sort of to quietly support um, the Sudanese government and the Sudanese military. So they're trying to both hold other countries accountable for the role that they may be playing in the continuing violence um, and also to do, to sort of use the the influence that they have um, to to foster peace. And actually just yesterday, they they appointed a special representative. Um, He's a former U.S. ambassador who's worked in a few um, different African countries. Um, He's actually in Sudan now to, to sort of help with the, with the peace talks. Mm. You also interviewed families uh, living within the Sudanese diaspora who live in other nations. And how are they dealing with these reports of violence? I mean, they're, they're devastated um, to know that their loved ones are sleeping underneath their beds at night because they are afraid that the military might break into their homes and open fire, to know that they are unable to have regular communication with those same loved ones at the same time that they know the military is openly shooting protesters in the streets is its own form of violence, actually. It's, it's an indirect form of violence. Um, but at the same time, I have been really struck by the amount of activism that even the diaspora is doing to raise awareness. Um, They're changing their social media profile photos to to raise awareness about the people who have died that are often referred to as martyrs of the movement Um, to the point where we now have celebrities like Rihanna um, tweeting in her and tweeting and posting on her Instagram stories um, to, to draw other people's attention to it. People in the diaspora are also um, joining efforts to crowdsource money to send directly to doctors and first emergent, first responders um, on the ground because they know that the, the, the communication is so cut off um, that it, it's on them also to do everything that they can do. So I know that there is a lot of pain right now in the diaspora, but they're also, I think, turning a lot of that pain into action. Mm. Well, thank you for joining us today, Tamara, for in keeping us up to date on what's happening in Sudan. Later on in the show, Alex will be sitting down with Kevin Bacon. But up next, we have your fire tweets, so stay tuned. Can we? Welcome back. I just enjoy learning about the lesbian pony couple on My uh, Little Pony. And Scootaloo. And, and Scootaloo. My life has been changed. And now I like, I just want to watch so I can learn more about this Scootaloo individual. I love how powerful the gay agenda has become. <laughs> I do too. It's really powerful. Yes. <laughs> well, Ari, you tweet it not about the gay agenda. <laughs> what about weddings? Do not get engaged during my wedding ceremony because then I'm going to pass out and the attention is going to be back on me. Do people actually do this? This is the rudest thing I've ever heard of. Two words, heterosexual culture. It's insane. It's similar to, you know, heterosexual people love you, come from heterosexuals, very part of my family. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They also try to make major holidays an engagement day. And what happens if if your wedding, your marriage falls apart, then Christmas is ruined forever. That's the thing. Like, why would you want to get engaged on, like, your birthday or something like that? So then that date, you're always like, not only is it my birthday, but it's the day that I made a commitment to my ex and things didn't turn out so well. Mm, I don't know. I, I I will never understand. Dainty Violet, you tweeted, there are people saying that I'm a feminist. I am not a feminist. I do not think women and men are equal. That's absurd. 
Women are better. Agreed. I'm not even fighting on that one. I agree. It's 2019 women rule. Thank you. Girl rights. Girl, girls rule. What does Spice Girl say? Girl, girl, girl power. power. Girl power. Girl, girl power. power. <laughs> Katie, you tweeted. New York, New York, a hell of a town. Even our loaves of bread get sized down. Oh my God, is bread in New York really that small? I haven't bought bread yet. This makes me so aggravated. Like, we are already paying too much for these tiny, tiny apartments, and now we have to pay too much for tiny loaves of bread. What a scam. But it's kind of chic. I love that, like, square. Very, very modern. You would pay that money for a small loaf of bread. I don't really buy bread. Okay. I do eat bread, but I don't buy bread. All right, just let me have my bagel. You can have your keep bagel. Keep it moving. <laughs> Schoolboy, you tweeted. Personally, I feel Romeo and Juliet could have handled the situation better. <laughs> they're kids, though. Like, they're children. It's true. Romeo and Juliet were, like, 13 and 14 years old. So you can't be surprised things got that wild. At 13 or 14, I was willing to risk it all and end it all for a man. And at 29, I also will do the same. So you know nothing really changes in time is a flat circle. Tweet of the day. <laughs> Ready? Yeah. Comes from Jamal. I arrived to the airport just in time to miss my flight. But as I was checking in, my flight was delayed because the incoming plane was damaged by a bird collision. Collision, not collusion. Collision. <laughs> Rest in peace to that bird. I'll never forget his sacrifice. Bird. R.I.P. Bird. We salute you. It and Jamal, yeah. you know, is doing incredible work. He's at The Times, and he's creating a book about black queer love. So I know, I believe that's why he's traveling so much right now. So, like, thank you, Bird, for dying for folks like us. Yeah. Have you ever had an experience where you thought you were going to miss your flight and then made it to check-in and, like, somehow made mm -hmm. it? Yes. You have. A, yeah. a few times. I, I have to travel a lot for work, and it happens constantly. Uh, I'm not a late person. I just pack my schedule too much. And there's yeah. times when you're like, God has intervened. This is wonderful. <laughs> I think I've only missed... One flight in my life, and it was to New York once. That's really impressive. Yeah, what about you? I've definitely had moments uh, where I have been, like, running through the airport so frantically and literally get to the gate as they're boarding, and then you just walk right on the plane. It's so, so anticlimactic, because you sprint, 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 and, and then you get you're to like, the oh, plane. Good. It's fine. And everyone's like, girl, what's up? You're like, I actually want everyone to applause for me <laughs> as I walk onto this plane that I have just made this flight. Thank She's you. Like, I have arrived. Very, very much. I have arrived. Everywhere. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but for me, the issue is always, like, I am not good with timing yeah. the, like, the time that I need to get to the airport because I am either, like, get, you know, estimating too much time, I get mm -hmm. there and I'm just, like, sitting around and that's really frustrating, or, like, being a frantic mess. I haven't mm. found, for as many flights as I've taken, yeah. still haven't found I love getting else. early because I like drinking, so thank you, airports. We've had this conversation we before. We have talked about We this. have indeed, yes. Cocktails. Well, coming up, I am sitting down with legendary actor Kevin Bacon, but next, we are going live from the district. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill correspondent Paul McLeod. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Paul. Good to see you. So here's a tweet from ABC News. President Trump tells George Stephanopoulos he wouldn't necessarily alert the FBI if approached by foreign figures with information on his 2020 opponent, saying it's not an interference. They have information. I think I'd take it. Paul, so clearly the president hasn't learned anything after 2016, correct? <laughs> Uh, this is my favorite part of Trump, is the Trump that either doesn't know or doesn't care that there are certain things politicians shouldn't say. So <laughs> he just barges in like a bull in a china shop and says them anyway. Says them anyway. Can you talk a little bit about the implications of what he said exactly? I mean, we know now that the Trump, <laughs> the Trump campaign is open to accepting uh, dirt uh, opposition research 
uh, from foreign countries in theory in 2020. I mean, this is, <laughs> frankly, kind of a, a burst of honesty from President Trump, where it's he's basically saying, look, if it'll help us get elected, uh, and if, you know, the information is good, we'll take it. So, Paul, we have to ask, is accepting this information illegal here in the United States? Really depends. Um, and I mean, this is one of the the questions that could have been resolved potentially by the whole Mueller report, but we're, we're not going to see that go to court. Um, it depends. I mean, if you are if you're involved in a conspiracy, if you are, say, coordinating with someone to steal, you know, well, let's just take the actual example that happened, to hack the Democratic Party's emails and, and release those. And yeah, that, I mean, that, that would be illegal. But if you're just, uh, if you weren't involved in that and you're on the receiving end of the information, probably not. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things that there's, a, it's a very much a gray area where there's a lot of it that would not be illegal per se, but it would be something that I think, especially given recent history, most people would frown upon. Mm. Most people would frown upon. Um, are there examples of other people who've received compromised information and then have reached out to the FBI? Yeah, I mean, famously, um, the Al Gore campaign, they received, I think, anonymously um, briefing documents of the, of the Bush campaign. And uh, they, they did turn it over to the FBI. I mean, essentially, you know, it, it, it feels like a hundred years ago, like these were just totally different norms that don't seem to be in play anymore. But yeah, I mean, the idea was that, oh, these, these, were, these were stolen. These are stolen documents. We can't, we can't use these. We've got to hand them over. And of course, that's uh, in contrast to uh, the 2016, where the Trump campaign was approached by uh, Russian uh, people who were believed to be involved with uh, the Russian government, and they were offering information, and they actually did take that meeting. Now, they say nothing actually came out of that, and that no information was actually handed over, and it was all just a wild goose chase. But we know that the Trump campaign in 2016 was open, by their own actions, were open to receiving dirt from Russian officials, and it doesn't look like that's changed. Well, here we are, so let's move on to another story. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News reporter Addie Baird. Democrats running for president uniformly want to overturn the ban on federal funding for abortions. House Democrats say they want that too, but many of them are about to vote to keep it anyway. Why will House Democrats vote to keep the Hyde Amendment here? Yeah, this is one of those things that I'm sure seems very confusing to a lot of people. Uh, why would Democrats vote for a ban essentially on any sort of subsidizing of abortion services from federal funds. That seems like something, I mean, that completely goes against the Democratic Party's current mantras of, of trying to, you know, support people through things like Medicaid, Medicare, including abortion services. The answer is pretty simply, it's just that they don't really have a choice. I mean, this is something that the Republican Party has drawn a line in the sand on. And the way Congress works, especially in a split Congress like we have today, uh, you've got to get both parties to sign off on a spending bill to get to keep the government funded to avoid a government shutdown. And we know Republicans are going to draw a hard line on this. And I mean, are Democrats going to, to t make this the issue that they're going to shut down the government over? I mean, at the end of the day, they're just not. Mm. Paul, why is the Hyde Amendment even attached to spending bills in the first place? Yeah, so good question. So basically, spending bills are one of the few things in Congress that actually have to get passed. A lot of other things, it's very easy to block uh, by just, you know, voting it down, keeping it from going to the floor. But when you have spending bills, I mean, 
Congress actually has to pass these. So this is a vehicle that people know that if you want to get your legislation enacted, try to get it on a spending bill. And so the Hyde Amendment has been consistently attached to spending bills because uh, to break it out would cause it to fail. But as long as Republicans fight to keep them in a spending bill, this is what ties the Democratic the Democrats' hands where they have to vote for the bill at the end of the day, and thus they have to vote for the Hyde Amendment because it's attached. Mm. Now, as you mentioned, uh, access to reproductive health care and abortion have been big issues on the 2020 trail so far. What is the divide between mm-hmm. 2020 candidates and House leadership on this particular issue? Yeah, this has become a bit of a, an election issue where we've seen uh, candidates now talking about the Hyde Amendment and promising to get rid of it um, if they're elected, which, you know, it's it's easier said than done. I mean, so we, we've seen House leadership, I mean, I'm sure in private, or not even in private, in public, would be supportive of getting rid of the Hyde Amendment, but uh, they have to be a bit more tactical in it. I mean, what we saw with the Obama administration, for example, when they were passing Obamacare, uh, there were not just Republicans, but there were anti-abortion Democrats, more of them, that they had to deal with. And so what they did was they kind of reformed the Hyde Amendment. So, for example, insurers on the on the Obamacare markets, technically federal subsidies can't go towards abortion, but what you can do is you can carve out a reproductive health uh, sort of rider on your insurance plan that's an extra $5 a month, and technically that's not subsidized, so there's ways to get around it. And so that's kind of what we're seeing with House leadership, is they'd rather try to find kind of uh, more low-key ways to undermine the Hyde Amendment or to work around it, rather than calling for it to just be struck down. That's much more of the the presidential, I'm, you know, I'm trying to convince uh, you to vote for me for president style. Mm, the, okay. the, the new presidential party line, <laughs> per se. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Paul, yeah. for joining us today. Yeah, good talking with you. I'm a good one. You too. Later in the show, Alex will be sitting down with actor that everyone is six degrees away from. I'm about to be two, Kevin Bacon. But up next, I sit down with actor Julia Stiles. Very Stay excited. Tuned. Very, very, very excited. excited. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with actor Julia Stiles, who is the star of the hit crime drama Riviera. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? It's good, and I love this dress. I keep telling you this, Thank but you very I'm, much. I may need to borrow it soon. Do you want? Do you want to? It would look good on you. Would it? Yeah, Thank it's you. Your coloring. I oh guess. my god! I've always wanted it. Julia Stiles to tell me I look good in a dress. Ferragamo. It makes me feel very fancy. It's, it's incredibly fancy. But speaking of fancy, let's jump into your show Riviera, which yes. is incredibly fancy. You end it season one with a cliffhanger. So I want to know, will your character be spending their time next season trying to solve a murder at the beginning? Uh, Not solve a murder. She's going to be spending season two trying to get away with murder. Getting away with, thank you. No, no, that's okay. Um, It was a good good setup. Um, Yeah, uh, we pick up season two right where we left off. um, On the heels of Georgina lured her, her stepson onto a sailboat and got him to confess that he had been responsible for the death of her husband. And she says to him, I knew that, I just wanted to hear you say it, and stabs him. Mm. So season two picks up right um, right there, where she has to dump the body overboard, and uh, is lost in a, in a storm. She goes back to the house and to the, the family, and now has to not only figure out how she's going to get away with murder legally, mm-hmm. but also with her own conscience, because she's now living with a family that is grieving over the death of their Mm. son and brother, and she's responsible for it. Mm, that must be pretty tough. <laughs> to, <laughs> I don't to know. I've never committed you, murder, but... Uh, you haven't? No. I do it on Tuesdays. But I can imagine it would be tough. <laughs> well, 
But what is tough is that you do your own stunts sometimes. What was really challenging this season to prepare for? So when I was first sent uh, the pilot script for Riviera, I thought, oh, the south of France and fancy dresses mm -hmm. and um, glamorous villas, sure, sign me up. Then cut to the beginning of season two, we're recreating a shipwreck mm -hmm. and, a, and a, uh, a rainstorm. And it was exciting to see that the, the, the crew had built like a giant tent and they had these water tanks that would dump 600 liters of water mm -hmm. on me while I'm struggling to <laughs> um, hold on to this sailboat that's capsizing. Um, that was fun for like the first hour and then cut all night long. I, if, if you don't know this, 600 liters of water is enough water to like uh, knock over a medium sized really? human, which it did. Oh, so you were knocked over? Many, many times, yes. Did, and and eventually the last, the last take um, or the last angle, I, I, I went overboard and I was grabbing onto the, to, mm -hmm. to what I could. And when I surfaced, um, I could see the panic on everyone's face and that was a wrap. Yeah, I'm panicked for you too. Did they make you do it again afterwards? No. They were like, no, no. this is We still had 10 episodes to film, so. Ooh, they needed to keep you alive, yeah. Julie. I think, I think so. But you're also the executive producer of the season, correct? The, uh, the see, we're gonna go, in August we start filming season three. Season three. And I'm so it's really important for you to stay alive, I guess, in this. <laughs> what are, how are you injecting your style into the new season? I mean, I've been really lucky that um, if, with this show, the writers and producers have been really open to my input um, in terms of story, in terms of um, the writing, the dialogue, all of it. And um, that's not always the case with mm -hmm. a TV show. So this, you know, this upcoming season, um, now I guess because I have a different title, mm -hmm. uh, I get to see scripts sooner and just feel like I, I can take a little more ownership over giving my opinion. Yeah. Like 600 liters of water opinions. You can like, <laughs> like no, like, no more, more 600 water. liters of water. Oh, and to add insult to injury, I found out later that there were other scenes with um, with the other actresses who got to do them. And they, they had scenes in like a spa with a 24 karat gold face mask. And I was mm -hmm. like, hmm, maybe next time I can do that. Ooh, that is cute. Were they really getting the spa treatment in that scene? They were, they were. Yeah, you. they played you on that. You need to switch that up next time. <laughs> So for you were now in the, sh the movie Hustlers, which has, I have to read the names, Cardi B, Jennifer Lopez, Constant Wu, Lily Reinhardt, Kiki Palmer, Mercedes Ruel. What was it like working with all those women? They're so incredible. I'm really excited about this movie. It's such a fascinating story. Um, it is about these, it's a real true story based on a New York Magazine article about these strippers at scores in New York who, when they weren't pulling in enough money, decided to start drugging the men um, in the champagne room and running up huge credit card tabs. Oh. And then eventually they got caught. But um, I was so interested in the story and the script and the director, the cast, that I, I told the director, I was like, I don't care, I will sweep the floors, I will make <laughs> coffee and sandwiches for everybody, I just want to be a part of this, because I felt like there was something, they really hit on something. Mm, and in the film, you play a journalist who <laughs> interviews Cardi B. What was it like working with her? I, I, I play the journalist who broke the story and broke I interview the, the women. All the women. And I'm sort of the, um, hopefully, you know, the, the window into this world for the audience. And mm -hmm. I hopefully make the audience understand why these women did what they did. Um, mostly, I, I, most of my scenes were with Jennifer and Constance. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I start off skeptical of them and maybe judgmental mm -hmm. and then very quickly come to realize that they were kind of entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. dare I say. Yeah. And 
J-Lo is dancing in this film, and you've been stated, you've said that she's phenomenal at pole dancing while working with her. Were you able to learn some moves from her? She's not only phenomenal at pole dancing. She's phenomenal she's at so phenomenal many period. things. But she's, I, in, when, when, when I was in scenes with her, mm -hmm. I took everything for me not to like have my jaw drop because mm -hmm. I didn't, her, she does so many things, it's, you can sometimes forget that she's a really legit actress. And she just stunned me. She, like Beyond the nails and the hair makeup and the, um, the jewelry and the Bronx accent, she just transformed into this other person um, but it didn't feel like a performance, and I think people are going to be really um, riveted by it. Yeah, and people are incredibly excited. I yeah. mean, Twitter's talking about it a lot. A film that if Twitter was around, or two films that Twitter would have talked about a lot if, that, if it was around, were two things that you were in, 10 Things I, I, I Hate About You and Save the Last Dance. I always want to say So You Think You Could Dance for some reason when I say that film title. Um, and I'd love to know, are rom-coms a genre in which you want to go back into one day? Um... I mean, it would be nice sometimes when I'm working on Riviera and I have to cry every day, mm -hmm. I think uh, it would be nice to do a comedy. Um, Rom-com, maybe, you know, it always depends on, it always depends on um, the script and who's involved and, you know, if, if it's, if it's done well, because there yeah. are good rom-coms in there. Of course. Kind of stinks. There's a range, like every yeah. type of film. I have to share with you that uh, Save the Last Dance was the first film as a mixed person, which I saw interracial couples together and supported and exploring that. So oh, I really cool. appreciate you doing that film. My sister was like, Julia Stiles is doing the show. Remember, she was like our mixed hero as a kid. And I was like, yeah, ah, she was. Thank you. <laughs> well, I have to say, as soon as I said, this dress would look good with your coloring. I didn't mean it that way. I, oh. I meant, <laughs> as soon as I said it, I was like, oh. Oh, no, I didn't catch that. Uh, no, I actually, because I, I was thinking about my own coloring. I just darkened my yeah. hair recently, and I don't know what colors to wear. That's yeah. where my brain was going. Oh, I anyway, didn't even no talk as that. No, I would never take offense to okay. that, and it would look good with my skin color. It would. <laughs> I think it would look fabulous. And your hair color. That's oh, an eye color. That's kind of what Oh, my I God, stop flirting with me. Stop. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, Julia, thank you so much for coming today, and we can't wait to see all the work you're doing across both TV and film and everything. Thank so it's really fabulous having you. And you can see Riviera, which returns season two on Thursday, June 20th on Sundance. Stay tuned for more AM to DM coming up next. This is Lady Sulid, and I'm joined now by the founder and CEO of the jewelry company Majuri, Nura Sakija. Nura, thank you so much for coming on and thank talking you. to me. Thank you for having me. So one of my favorite things about Majuri that you guys really talk about a lot is so many jewelry companies, especially fine jewelry companies, are marketed towards men. You guys market towards women. Can you explain that difference? Yes, it was. So I'll give you a quick background. So I've been in the industry for a long time because my family has been in the industry for three generations. So when I was watching it, it was a lot of traditional brands are marketing for men towards men to buy for women. And we thought that that is something that we're not really after. And we're not after gifting. We wanted to create something where women can buy jewelry for themselves, a brand that they connect with. And so we scrapped all of the concept of uh, marketing for men. And we created the entire brand all the way from product design to photography to content is for women to buy jewelry for themselves. Yeah, that's such an antiquated concept. The only way that women get jewelry is they get it from the men in their lives. Obviously, we want to buy things for ourselves or for our friends. Yeah. Was there one moment that made you realize that this was a problem in the jewelry industry? Uh, it was for me going to shop for jewelry and seeing my friends receiving jewelry essentially um, on Valentine's or the holidays. And they oftentimes receive jewelry that they don't really like and they have to wear it just to show that they love it. Uh, so it was at that point when I realized that it's time for us to do something different and it's time for us to target women and really create something beautiful for them. 
Yeah, because men have no idea what they're doing. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so you just gave birth to twins. Congratulations. Thank you. And we heard that you were out raising funds and talking to investors while you were pregnant. I think seven months pregnant with twins, correct? Yes. So that must have been such an experience because one of the things we talk about here a lot in this segment is how so many men just don't understand female companies that are aimed towards a female consumer. And I wonder what your experience was like, literally being pregnant, a woman, doing it all, having it all, trying to pitch your company to men. It was very hard. Obviously, I was very visibly pregnant um, and a lot of our investors are in different parts of the world, so I couldn't fly to see them. And so I was pitching via videos, which is very unheard of. So it was it was not an easy experience at all, but I'll tell you what really helped me is having women VCs on the other side who had children and who had these challenges before and really understood what I'm going through and really supported me through the process because I was super nervous going in and having to pitch a company, having to raise money is, is a very tough experience. And then doing that while you're pregnant and you're in your third trimester was very nerve wracking. But as soon as I started connecting with them and as soon as I started also targeting uh, funds with women VCs, it was so much easier. The conversation was a lot easier and they were very supportive. Did you do that on purpose, try to find funds with female VCs? Um, I wouldn't say on purpose, but I, what I've been noticing is women VCs are increasing. And also when I'm targeting, what I'm looking for is funds that are really um, interested in brands. And naturally, there's a lot of uh, women VCs there because they're really supportive of the experience of, um, you know, uh, creating a brand, creating something beautiful uh, and meaningful. And so um, it was sort of a byproduct of targeting VCs who are really interested in brands. And that makes all of the difference, right? It's totally different pitching to someone in this unique situation who has been through it and yes. knows what it's like to be pregnant than to a group of men who have no idea what you're dealing with at all. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very different than saying, you know, my wife has been through it than actually going through it yourself. And I think that also pushes me right now to create Majuri as a great workplace for parents and for women. And it's something that I'm very, very passionate about. I think, yeah, I think people tend to make real changes when we have people in positions of power who actually know what women are dealing with. Yes. Uh, so one of the ways that I found out about Majori that I know all of my friends have found out about Majori <laughs> is Instagram. You guys have a lot of good ads on Instagram. That seems to be a big part of your marketing strategy. Why did you decide to go that route? We love Instagram. I think the, the greatest thing about Instagram, first of all, it's visual and our product is visual and we can depict the lifestyle, we can depict the styling opportunity also. Um, but it's also a very instant connection with the customer. Uh, so one of the very important things that we've done since we started the company is build a very transparent and very uh, a close relationship with our customers and with our community. And Instagram is a really great platform for us to have a conversation with them. Um, so we, you know, we love Instagram. We work with a lot of also influencers um, and other brands as well who are very much uh, on brand. And so it enabled us to really reach our customers and talk to them directly. Yeah, and if you want women to buy things for themselves, what better way than showing, meeting them where they are? Where you know we all love Instagram, obviously. Yeah, a lot of women love Instagram, so it's a great place. And to it's easily accessible. It's uh, for busy women. You know, that's how they get inspired, and we want to be there. Definitely, Lenora. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about Majori. Up next, Alec is sitting down with the one and only Kevin Bacon.
This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with a Philly hometown hero, legendary actor Kevin Bacon, star of City on a Hill, a new crime drama on Showtime. Thanks for taking the time to join me. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk about your character in this new show. Within the first minute that we're introduced to him, we learn that he is corrupt, that he is a bigot. So what was your reaction when you first read about him for the first time? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it is very, uh, he, pretty much every scene that Jackie does, he says something offensive, uh, does something corrupt, uh, hurts people, is doing drugs, drinking. Um, <laughs> runs the gamut. <laughs> yeah, it really, really runs the gamut. Um, I, but when I read the character, every once in a while you, 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 you see a, a part and you say, uh, it's going to take me some work to kind of um, figure out what to do with this guy. But it's like Jackie, I heard him, I could see him, I could see the way that he walked, I could see the way that he, I, I wanted to make him look and, and, and move and sound and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's, while he is a despicable person, the, um, it, there's a great depth of character there. And there's this you know, fantastic voice that he has that was created by uh, Chuck McClain. Mm. And the show goes back to a troubled time in Boston. Um, is there a message or a takeaway that you hope viewers get about the criminal justice system or race or policing in the city during that period? Well, I think if you look at the show, uh, it's it's kind of set up that this was a uh, a time when things were, you know, hopefully making a, a turn for the better. At the same time, I think that you can look at the show and say, well, how far have we come, you know? And that's going to be the discussion, I think. Um, um, and and not even just specifically for Boston, but, you know, a, as a country and, and when, uh, when you look at um, the things that, you know, are still coming out of people's mouths and the, and the corruption that's still happening mm -hmm. and um, the... Uh, the, the um, abuse and the and the racial profiling and 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 the and the very very tenuous kind of uh, relationship between uh, law enforcement oftentimes and and the people that they're there to serve, um, you know, are we moving forward or or not? I mean, it's a, a big question. One of the things you mentioned is that uh, you had to find this character's voice. This is not the first Boston character that you have played no, over the years. By long shot. Have yeah. you uh, have you found the key to a good Boston accent? You know, accents are a funny thing. I I really try to think of it not as an accent, but more, as you said, of to Jackie's voice. Because, you know, you can um, certainly there are certain sounds that are real different, say from Philly the, to Boston, and it's not that far away. But mm, as mm -hmm. you slide down down the coast and you move <laughs> through New York and you get you get to Philly, you know that you can actually hear it start start to change in that way. Um, but I think if you focus too much on on I think it has to be a full package it's got to be the kind of music of it it's got to be the way it's the way it's phrased it's got to be the placement of the voice and oftentimes you'll hear two people that are grow up you know a, a block away from each other and they have different kinds of accents so everybody there is no one specific right way to do a Boston. So that's why I try to really think of it as Jackie's voice. Mm. Well, the show is produced by famed Bostonians, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, and you are also a co-executive producer. Did you get to work closely with them? What was the best part about working with them? Well, Ben came to uh, Chuck McClain with an idea. Um, and Chuck McClain is a writer that had, had worked with him before. He's a uh, really am amazing um, mind, has incredible knowledge of Boston um, history and, and politics. And 
Chuck took that idea and just really kind of uh, ran with it. Mm. And your wife, Kira Cedric, directed an episode. Does that sense of familiarity help when you're on set with someone? I think so. Um, yeah, I th- she's a great director. She's very, very enthusiastic about directing. It's um, She's relatively new to it. Probably in the last um, three years, she's really um, embraced it. But I was a big uh, champion of her becoming a director because I knew that she would be good at it. And um when it comes to, uh, you know, there's some directors who really focus on, uh, you know, the, the camera le- lenses and the, and the look and the placement of, of the scene and stuff like that. And she has a great knowledge of how to do that just based on how many years she spent on a set. But then there's directors who are also incredibly focused on performance. And that's the thing that she's, she's great with. And I think across the board, all the actors really love that and appreciated that about her. She comes in, she gives you some pointers here and there. Oh, yeah, she does. <laughs> she does, yep. She comes and gives me pointers, yep. yeah. Well, neither you nor Kira have shied away from expressing your opposition to some of Trump's positions um, on Twitter and particularly on environmental issues. Why have you decided to be outspoken about that? I mean, I think that this is the future of our planet. I think it's astounding how far we've we've gone backwards um, since he's been president in terms of um, uh, environmental law. And, even, and now we're at a point where um, absolute hard facts of science are being constantly questioned. And it, it, it blows my mind because uh, in a lot of ways, I think that uh, the environment really shouldn't be a political issue. I mean, this is, this is the air that we breathe, the planet that we live on. This is the future of our, 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 our lives and our, and our children's lives. And, um, and, and the administration's um, uh, position on the environment is, is um, despicable. Mm. I want to talk about some of your other work. Fans of the cult favorite Tremors really want to know, will there ever be a series reboot? Is it completely gone? Well, you know, listen, uh, we went down to Austin to the ATX Film Festival and, and showed a bunch of scenes and actually read some scenes from the, um, uh, from the pilot. And I, I love it. I think we did a, a fantastic job. Um, the fact that uh, Sci-Fi decided to not turn it into a series, um, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've come to uh, realize that I'm, I'm constantly surprised by the decisions that are made in this mm. business that, that we're in. Um, but that one is a real head-scratcher to me. Mm. So who knows? You know, maybe someday. Yeah, who knows? One of the things I mentioned at the beginning of the segment is that you are a Philly hometown hero. And uh, I actually went to a rival high school with a school that you went to, Masterman, right? Um, and you recently actually attended a school reunion. What was that like? Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, when 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 I was at Masterman, it was only a junior high. Hmm. So you, you oh, also would have been a middle school. Yeah. Right, right. You were at Central, right? Yeah, I was at Central, yeah, and yeah. it was a high school at that point. It was uh, yeah, Masterman had turned into a high school. Um, but uh, you know, it was a a buddy of mine who who uh, it, it was not a, an organized thing by Masterman. It was, it was just kind of he just kind of got on Facebook and. Um, and pulled us all together into four, you know, I guess it was, what, 40 years or something like that, that, that everybody, maybe longer, 50, I don't even know, I can't. <laughs> um, it was, it was, it was great. I mean, I loved uh, reconnecting with mm-hmm. people and some of the stories that people had were hilarious. Um, you know, I, for better or for worse, don't have the greatest memory for some of these details. So mm-hmm. some of the things that they reminded me that I did, um, 
I don't know. So I was like, did that really happen? <laughs> I think that's how, how a lot of us feel about those years of I our think lives. So. Yeah. Um, how long have you been aware of like the Philly devotion for you? Are you aware of all the Philly devotion towards you? I'm not really aware of that, no. Uh, but, I, but I do have a very, very uh, soft spot in my heart for that town. And, and, and what's amazing to me is that, uh, you know, I, I moved to New York when I was, when I was 17 and um, have shot some things in New York and a ton of things in, in California and other states. I've shot maybe seven things in, in Boston and only one in Philly. Where's the love for I, Philly? Where's the Come love for on. Philly? It's not my fault. I yeah. mean, I would like to go and actually play. I'd love to I'd love to be, you were talking about Boston accent. I'd love to go down and do a Philly accent. I would say a South Philly, like a yeah, South Philly sure. accent. People yeah, say going that down I... a story with an OG and a Coke. Really? Oh, look at it. Diet Coke? Yeah, why well, are you on a diet? You know? <laughs> Got a root for the Eagles, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to Wawa. <laughs> well, this summer you're going on tour uh, with the Bacon brothers with mm. your brother Michael um, is there anyone that you would really love to collaborate with or you know oh. sing some songs with you even from a different genre oh be? oh man there's so many there's so many peace people but uh, if I had to pick another genre maybe I'd say I don't know post Malone maybe interesting choice <laughs> interesting collaboration I guess we'll have to uh, put it out into the world and <laughs> hopefully maybe we can make it happen Probably not gonna. <laughs> well listen thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me pleasure and uh, City on a Hill premieres on Sunday on Showtime. Up next, we read some of your tweets. Welcome back. It is time for At Us. And we were just having such a good time we were. today. I'm so <laughs> Not even ready Kevin. for this to start. Like, oh we're my God, just, we're like, going. absorbing it all. I was just Kevin Bacon literally just walked off. And I was like, bye. See bye. you later. <laughs> I mean, I was just... So uh, shook in the best way possible that yeah. he was like entertaining I mean, all my legends supported legends. Oh, Philly holding that. it down. Too much. Alex Bird, too much. Kevin Bacon. I my love heart, it. My heart can barely handle it. <laughs> well, we asked you the name of a celebrity who has disappointed you. Katie said, "I waited outside of TRL once for James McAvoy, and when he came out, he threw himself into the back of a van to avoid me. That hurt my feelings." James McAvoy is canceled. Oh my God. Send us your stories about this and we'll, yes. you know, we'll do your bidding. Because <laughs> we will figure <laughs> no, that's terrible. We'll shame, we'll shame them for yeah. you. That is really terrible. Yeah, well, what is that? They say, like, never meet your heroes or something. Yeah, because always will disappoint. Always, yeah, they'll always disappoint you. Mm. Well, uh, Princess Slaya says, sigh. And that's a gif of you know who. I thought that we were going to get some Kanye's. I knew Kanye one. was coming. Whenever yeah. you ask people, like, what celebrities cancel people at Kanye West? Yes. And I, again, love his music. Politics. Yeah. 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 Jen added, does uh, being perpetually disappointed by celebrity men count? Yes. Yeah, that counts. Completely. So much disappointment. We said earlier that, All the time. you know, women are better. <laughs> so that includes women celebrities Indeed. are better than male celebrities. Indeed. So you are, you are supported in that. Yes. Well, what a show. Thank you to our guests, Tamara Griffin, Lauren Strapigale, Paul McLeod, Nora Sakija, Kevin Bacon, and Julia Stiles. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day.